Hello listeners, welcome to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm John Bergman, I'm the senior editor at CBJ, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And I'll start by just giving a brief overview of what we plan to do with these podcasts, because it's a pretty simple objective. We hope to inform and connect and inspire people who work in the climbing industry. And we aim to do that with in-depth conversations. So to jumpstart things, today's episode is an interview with Garrett Greger. It's almost hard to label Garrett because he has done so much. He's been a coach at Team ABC. He's been a route setter for gyms and for international competitions. He was one of the setters at the Tokyo Olympics. And so he's just kind of become this wealth of experience and wisdom as it pertains to not only the evolution of route setting, but also just the evolution of the climbing industry. So we get into all of that in this episode. We talk about the increase in professionalization that Garrett has noticed and some strides that maybe still need to be made in the industry. If you're a comp fan, pay close attention to our little conversational deviation into what makes competitors like Colin Duffy and Natalia Grossman and Brooke Rabatou so great and so elite. But before we roll into the conversation, let me shout out some brands that are helping to keep this podcast running. First up, thanks to EP Climbing. Over the past 30 plus years, EP has built climbing walls for gyms, for schools, for outdoor parks, for the Olympics. So go check them out at epclimbing.com. Secondly, thanks to Kilter. For about 10 years now, Kilter has been producing some of the most popular and iconic climbing shapes. Kilter's actually won more CBJ Grip List awards than any other brand ever, which is a really impressive accolade. So go check out the full selection of shapes at Kilter's website, which is settercloset.com. Okay, that is enough with the preamble. On to the interview. Here it is, my chat with Garrett Gregor. What I find noteworthy about your career, I think this is a good starting point, is it's not just that you have gone from being a setter at one gym to being a setter at another gym. It's that the moves of your career have been really historic plot points for the whole climbing industry. <laughs> First, you were at the ground level for Team ABC, which was pretty pioneering, giving an exclusive focus to kids, to route setting for kids, to being a facility for kids. You also set at the Tokyo Olympics, which was, of course, historic because it was climbing's Olympic debut. And you've also set at various commercial gyms. You were with Bouldering Project for a bit, which has gyms spread across the country. So when you reflect on all of it, does it feel like you've been route setting, working on the route setting craft for a long time, or does it feel still pretty new to you? Uh, great question. Uh, first of all, congratulations to you, because I think, too, that this podcast represents kind of like a shift of where we are in the industry. There's so many people that are interested to know about this and the craft of route setting and where we're going next as an industry. And, you know, in as much as we've grown, there's still so much more we've yet to do as a sport, as a profession. And I think, you know, as much as I've done, I think there's still more to do. So I'm flattered about the analogy between my, <laughs> my resume and uh, the way the industry's gone. But yeah, I think in some ways it does feel like I've done this for a long time. Um, you know, I won't I won't say that it's it's been like easy. It's taken a lot of determination, a lot of determination, but also sort of like a, a perseverance in the face of like ambiguity about was this even going to be possible? When I started setting, it was literally just a volunteer position at my local gym 
and something that you did every six months or so when the owner of the gym felt like changing the roots over. There was no head root setter. There was no direct, certainly no director of setting. There were no root setters. It was just like people that came into the gym that were excited to put that thing up and like sort of challenge themselves and challenge the rest of their community. And so that was 20 something years ago. When I when I look back on it, really, because, um, you know, it was in 2005, I want to say 2006 that I got my first level one. So uh, and I'd started like, like I said, volunteering sometime in 2002 or so. So it was like it's you know, it has not been like an this is you take this step and then this happens and then you take this step and then that happens. And there were many nights of like is this the right move? Like I was sleeping on a floor. I was living on a couch. I was uh, volunteering my time. And that was, yeah, that, that took a lot of sort of resilience to get to where I was, but I knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I was so passionate about the, the craft of root setting, about climbing in general, about sharing that experience that there was no doubt in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. So in the thick of it, it was not feeling like, oh, I'm just kind of trudging along and like this is what it was everything I wanted to be and everything I breathed was climbing and root setting and thinking about climbing. And uh, and looking back on it, I'm like, man, that was 20 years. So I, I guess, um, like I said, I think there's still more to go, but it was not an, uh, it was not an easy path to take. Yeah, let's talk about some of the, the when you say there's more to go, I'd be curious to hear some ideas or some some hopes, hopes and dreams that you have of where where it will continue to go because you mentioned starting off as a volunteer and and the schedule for your setting being pretty intermittent and and now of course I after a decade, 20 years, there's the pay is better in route setting. Obviously, there there's the delineation of roles and there are those headsetters at pretty much every gym. Um, so I think to that point, the professionalization of route setting has become better. And, and that's a, a bell that we've kind of heard ringing for the past several years as route setting is becoming more professionalized. I think that is certainly true. And the all the things we just said are strides that have been made in the positive direction. But I sometimes still wonder if the professionalization of the route setting industry is a little exaggerated or oversold. Maybe uh, it's almost like we, we want to say it's professionalized um, when in fact, I think there is still a lot of room for improvement it, to make it a lifelong career. I mean, I think of, I don't see a lot of route setters, for example, uh, sustaining a family on a route setting salary. I don't see a lot of people saving money on a route setting, at least my friends that are route setters. I don't see them saving a lot of money. I don't see them putting down money for a house in a lot of cases. Um, I see some setters getting health insurance, which is wonderful that some gyms do that, but I, there are plenty of other gyms that, that don't do that. Um, and I'm not saying that to be a knock on those gyms. These are just kind of like observations. And even beyond all this, I don't see a lot of people setting into their mid 40s, 50s and beyond. And and you know, God bless those people that do. I think it's awesome. But I, I, I think it's it's pretty rare. All those things that are kind of hallmarks of professionalization in other industries. I don't really see that in mass in climbing yet. And so I'm wondering if you'd if maybe if you'd gnaw on that a little bit with me, because this is something that has, it's, it's kind of a, a topic that I think about a lot. Yeah. I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> I think, I think a lot of people are looking at the industry, the profession of root setting and, and thinking about, you know, how can we make this better? It's hard because I, I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think uh, one, there's like sort of this, cultural reckoning with like what is work how how much of that should be allocated to you know serving for a business and serving for others so there's like this kind of like in the zeitgeist of what's going on right now there's like how much of that are we 
really willing to to give. So I think that's one thing. And then kind of like interwoven with that, there's like a lot of professions that pay really, really well. And you look at what it takes to not just root set, but to deliver mail, to be a, be a garbage worker, to uh, all of the, to, to lay brick, to like, there's all of these professions where I think people are looking around and saying like, well, why is that valued so much more than mine? Or, you know, again, I can't sort of like speak to all of the things going on there or how to best come up with a solution there. But I think that's something that's going on. And I think that happens within root setting in particular, because root setters see how successful we have a sport now that has been sort of like taken on in mass in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people that are getting into the sport now. And I think root setters are trying to keep up with that and feeling as though they are, they're the ones that are helping to promote the sport that are helping to get people into the sport that are helping to get people enjoying the sport and feeling like their contribution isn't, isn't quite meeting the same arc that, that people are getting into the sport. So I think there's that. Then I think there's also some truth to the fact that, as you said, we have made strides in, in where we are. Um, like I said, I, it was, it was literally a part of the path that you like volunteered, didn't get paid, had to pay your own way to get there. You had to have the privilege of sort of like either having someone support you or being well off enough to, to make that happen. And fortunately, you know, for USA climbing, that is no longer part of the path uh, for a lot of gym organi or organizers that's no longer part of the path but for a lot of federations that's also embedded into the culture of how you how you do this you don't say no to opportunities you are beholden to sort of when this this thing arises you can't say no you have to give what it takes you have to put in more hours because more hours makes a better product and that's a hard thing to like tease out I think um, you can't just remove it all at once. It has to to sort of like happen over time, sadly, I think. But I, I think a, a third place is that we haven't quite gotten to a point or, or maybe because of what's happening in that culture of like, you need to do more, you need to take on all the opportunities you can. And people are so passionate about climbing generally that that get into this craft that they just want to do it all the time, that there's a hard work-life balance either because of the work that's demanded of them or because of their passion for it. And, and that's something, you know, somebody laying tile isn't going to lay tile on the weekends just for fun because they, they love doing it. Um, or maybe they'll do that occasionally on their house, but like you, you kind of see what I'm getting at that. Like, I think there has to be a way that we either supplement with the, the industry. So those people 50, 60 years old that have been able to make it a career aren't having to take falls from 15 feet onto foam every day. Um, that there's a, a good balance between how they can allow their bodies to recover, but also, fill the needs of what their community is asking for. Uh, so there has to be maybe a little bit of like a give and take with what the community's expectations are of root setters and the turnover that happens in the gym. There's a lot of things to tease out. And I, I don't know that I have like the answer of what needs to happen next, but I think you're, you're right that those are some of the areas that we need to, to move towards that, you know, if we are to say like, the craft has truly become professionalized. And I think we aspire to want to be able to have people do this into their 50s, 60s, to be able to retire on it and to be able to say like they can afford a house, they can afford a family, or, or maybe it's, you know, the sad reality is, is that it's not a profession like that. I, again, I don't know the answer necessarily, but um, I hope we can get to a, a point where people can continue doing it for a long time. And maybe they supplement with forerunners that come into the gym. Maybe they supplement with the, 
you know, there, there's limits on what their body can do in terms of how many days a week they work, or there's, there's ways they can supplement with coaching, um, for their community within the gym, which is something I think a lot of, a lot of gyms and a lot of people that are getting into the sport want, you know, you go to a tennis club, you go to a golf golf course, there's so many golf pros and tennis pros that are, you can pick a private lesson anytime, but that's, that's not the case so much in, in climbing right now. I have wondered if we're going to see more of that in the future, more private coaching. It gets to be kind of a, a complicated area because a lot of gyms, from what I've understood from talking to people that do coach and then to talking to gym owners and whatnot, a lot of gyms don't want people coaching in that gym unless they are associated with the gym or employed by the gym, which to your point is similar to tennis clubs and golf clubs usually. Um, but I, I, I do know that that is a growing part of climbing is this idea of a personal, I mean, as, as much as we climbing is now promoted so much as a, uh, like a functional fitness sport, a, a sort of like yoga, right? And and so you're going to see people coming into it with those ambitions of wanting to have it be their their workout instead of doing yoga or something like that. And so they're going to want somebody training them or leading them. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in the next decade, the, the idea of personal trainers in climbing, because I've certainly seen a lot emerge just in the past couple of years. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people that want that, I'd, I'd say, to your point, um, that are looking to like be shown the ropes, uh, no pun intended. You know, when you walk into the gym, it can be really intimidating. And so that's one way to to sort of like get into the sport. Um, and and a lot of people want that. And it's just not offered everywhere. Um, or if it is, as you said, there's they need to be working for the gym. And I think in a lot of other countries too, that there's not like a strict, you have to be setting only at this gym or you have to be coaching only at this gym. That's another cultural thing too. And a product of a sort of our working environments and maybe cuts down on that competition a little bit, uh, for how people get into it. But, um, yeah, I, I do think the profession of coaching is one that is a logical progression for root setters that know the product so well and so intimately and can be able to articulate, you know, for some that have those skills as well to be able to communicate with others that and, and share what it is that they need to do, that that is a logical next step for them um, and could be some way to sort of balance those two, two things. And you, you do have a lot of coaching experience, training experience. We'll get to that in a sec, but I want to stay on the route setting uh, here. Aside from the professionalization of the industry that we've talked about, let's talk about the actual uh, the the craft of of setting uh, in in your career, all the places you've been, the years that you've been at it. What have been some of the biggest changes that you have noticed? Well, well, one would just be sort of the the resources you have to work with. The walls that are constructed are vastly different. Where I grew up climbing, it was like concrete plastered onto walls. And so not having that, having flat wood panels that you can put a variety of different shapes and sizes onto makes for a, a very different setting environment and, and something that you can, the bounds and the confinements and the constraints of what you were limited to before change dramatically. Uh, and to that point, the holds that have been shaped, uh, if you look back you know, when people were just getting into the sport and sort of like breaking off real, real rocks and sort of uh, bolting those onto the sides of, of underpasses to where we were with initial urethane or, or resin uh, holds to what we can do now with polyurethane and hollow backed holds, these massive, massive shapes that can go onto the wall that are lighter and stronger. They're more colorful. So they draw people in. Those, those are really big changes. And then I'd say sort of like fiberglass and, you know, wooden volumes are another element of that, which is uh, wooden volumes didn't, I think, really come into the sort of normal vocabulary of setters until probably the early 2000s, late 2000s, maybe. 
And at that point, it was like, whoa, you can totally change the angles on these things. You can create these stalactite features and and it creates this whole other dimension, literally, that you can work within as a setter. And, and that and those big fiberglass shapes that that sort of like have a very different texture to them are are some of the ways that the sport has has changed pretty dramatically. Otherwise, I'd say the tools that we have to work with as well. Um, when I started, it was you picked up a T-wrench uh, and, and you got tendonitis pretty much immediately. And then we got to impacts or drills and then to impacts drivers. And then now we have soft impacts that limit the vibration and limit, you know, the the amount of like decibels that you have to experience as a setter doing this day to day you know what else like there's all sorts of tools when i started setting our on rope looking back it was really horrible what we did uh but you know you kind of like made it work and you like tied into a t-net at the bottom of the wall and you just went for it and you pulled up on a grigri which isn't meant to be used that way and um, and now we have rigs and safety harnesses. And um, I think there there's been a lot of strides made into that professionalization because what can happen there is is very dangerous, you know, from people dropping holds onto other setters to people dropping holds onto members uh, to themselves getting hurt pretty seriously. You get up into the air 20, 30, 40 plus feet and that's really dangerous territory. So that's one area that I'm really glad to see that we have some sort of standardization around what we do and the tools that we use. You mentioned the massive, the the volumes, the massive holds related to all of that. The the larger surface of their, of those big holds allows for bigger moves in a lot of ways. You can land on a, on a bigger surface, which kind of ushers in this era of whatever you want to call it, parkour style setting, more dynamic style of setting, comp style of setting. And you have set for comps and also commercial gyms. And so I'm sure you have heard this pushback from people. uh, In a lot of times, it's from people that have been climbing for a long time. But in some cases, it's just even newer climbers. They push back against this comp style, this really dynamic style of setting that has become pretty prevalent, obviously in competitions, as the name suggests, but also more and more in commercial gyms. So as a setter who has worked in all styles of setting, what do you say to people that push back against that or, or criticize this the, the comp style of setting, so to speak? Uh, that's a good question. And, you know, you saying that, I think, jogged in my mind one other really big part of, I think, what has changed. And it's not necessarily a physical tool per se, but it's kind of the community of root setters that has changed. Uh, It used to be that you got your information from magazines and little snippets on dead point that came out every now and then. Uh, I'm probably dating myself because many of the climbers don't know dead point. It's what mellow is maybe now today. Um, You know, it now you have like just a flood of Instagram and people seeing what, what other others did and you getting to see what this person climbed on and that person getting to see what happened in this comp and this person seeing what so-and-so is climbing outside. And I think that breeds along with the sort of root setting program that we have, particularly in the United States, the, the USA climbing program for all the things I think, as I mentioned before, you know, the ways that it had, yet to professionalize and we volunteered and et cetera, et cetera. The community that that has built and the people that see this as a career and as a profession and take these things seriously and get to, to share with one another, share their ideas, share their experiences, learn from one another has really, I think, up-leveled what the craft of root setting is and, and, can be. So I'd I'd say that's another big component of that. And to that point, there's always this push in root setting to try new things and to, you know, see what else you can put on. When people first put wooden volumes on the wall was like, what is that thing? And I think fundamentally, a lot of people don't love 
new things. And that's, that's fair. Some people want to go out and just ski on blues all day. Some people want to go out and just hit the ball around. That's, that's totally fine. Um, and I think as, as a gym, you need to try to provide for all of that, but also try to push what people have available to them. Because if it's just one distinct style of setting, I don't think that's, I think that's a disservice to everyone. Um, but if, if you weave in and, you know, maybe you don't like the, the smeary slabs with that are comp style, but you get to do it every now and then. And it's not just like forced down your throat every, every single set, every single week, then maybe you learn to enjoy that. And, and I think that's another area that coaching in particular can offer to our communities is that helping them to see this is one of the things that in coaching, I, I used to um, have them really try to embrace is that, you know, sometimes like what you don't enjoy is what you need most. And sometimes suffering through it a little bit is really valuable to you as a climber, but also to you personally and in, in helping you grow and realize, you know, you're capable of more than you thought you were. And, and I think if we're able to, to complement people's climbing experience with coaches and people that help others see that, yeah, maybe it's not a V5 or maybe it's not, you know, what that, that number that you thought it was, but it's still a climb that's going to be valuable for you. I think that's one way we can really add to people's climbing experience. Let's talk more about your coaching because it's not just, it's not fair to just say you have coached. You have coached more accurately some of the best climbers in American history. I'm at team ABC in particular. I'm thinking of Natalia Grossman, Brooke Rabatou, Colin Duffy, Margot Hayes. That is not an exhaustive list. There are, there are many others. Uh, when you look though at the elite of the elite that you have coached from the time that they were really young and part of the team ABC system, is there a single quality that all of them share? Is there a, a single aspect to the elite climbers of the world that you kind of notice in all of them that maybe you don't notice or you don't notice to the same degree in most other yeah. climbers? Yeah. Yeah. There is. And this is part of what I think, uh, you know, when, when we talked about the path for uh, me as a root setter, right? It was it was not like an easy one way street that you, you made this turn, you made that turn. It was not clear what you did. But all along the way, persistence, dedication, resilience, those are the qualities that I think makes people good at what they do. And that is something you see in all of those individuals. You know, I think back to like seeing Colin in the gym, even from a young age and the sort of like intensity that he wanted to, to do well at this thing. It was evident from early on at, at like seven years old, everybody could see it. You could feel it. Um, and, and I think that exists and in some degree in, in all of those individuals that you named, and it's more prevalent than it is, I think, in the general population. And it comes from, I think for every individual, it comes from a variety of different places. Um, I think that resilience, persistence, intensity is is one bucket and another bucket is adaptability you see this in in high level athletes uh across the board i think uh, I, i'm a fan of all sports and watching athletes that perform at high levels and you see something pretty consistent that like this might be polarizing but if lebron james uh does not adapt the way he plays over the course of his 20 something years in the nba then he's not going to be able to succeed. If Rafael Nadal, if Sabalenka does not work on her serve, then, you know, she's going to fall short. And, and you see people adapt and identify the things that they need to work on. And this is what I mean about 
you know, people that don't enjoy competition climbing, that you have to be willing to adapt in order to get better. You have to be willing to embrace the things that you're not good at in order to progress. And again, some people don't want to progress. So that's, or, or some people don't have that sort of intense desire to progress, I'd say, but you know, for those that do, that's, that's one of the qualities I think that can really elevate you. A lot of the things that you said, resilience, adaptability, intensity, those seem to me like innate things in large part, especially if you're talking about a kid who's seven years old, right? There has to be something there. It's nature and nurture, right? That kid was born with a certain degree of intensity or persistence that maybe other kids don't have. But I wonder if, and I'd enjoy hearing from you, can some of those factors be be sort of coached into kids, I guess? And what would be the strategies for that? If you're wanting to make a climber more mm-hmm. adaptable or you're wanting to make them more resilient, what what would you do with that kid to to improve those those things? Well, I think as a coach, your job is to recognize what people's desires are. Not everybody wants to be Colin Duffy. Not every like not everybody wants to be uh dedicating because it takes a lot of time and energy to do what they do. It is not something that comes easy. It's not something that comes overnight. Progress is not linear. And there's going to be setbacks along the way. You're going to be unsure whether this is the right path. Uh, and so from like a coach or a parent's perspective, you can't force that down anyone. Like I, I can't make someone Colin Duffy that doesn't want to be Colin Duffy. And so in that sense, like that sort of intrinsic motivation, nature, if you want to call it, that intrinsic motivation is always going to be more powerful than, than any extrinsic rewards that I offer up. And, you know, for anybody that's coached or, uh, I I haven't parented, but, you know, bribing someone to do something is not going to make them love it long-term. It's not going to encourage them to want to do it on their own. So I think you have to be careful and recognize that it, that path is not for everyone. And for those that do one, putting them in sort of the right environment. One of the things that was really unique and special about ABC was partially coincidence, partially location, partially sort of the talent of coaches and root setters that we had in the gym. Um, All those factors coming together at the right time and the kids fed off of that and fed off of each other. And so one, it's putting them in the right environment that, you know, a kid can progress, an individual can progress to a certain level maybe on their own or with their parents or just with a couple of friends at the gym. But one of the things that made ABC special is that there's so many of those kids that wanted to be Colin Duffy's. There's so many of those kids that help push and elevate each other. Again, this is another thing that you hear in high level sports is I really enjoyed playing so-and-so because he helped elevate. Like, I feel like I played better with him or I really enjoyed playing this team because that, that sort of the competition is fierce and you can feel it. And it, and it brought me to a whole other level. Um, so the environment in which those people come to like mature and come to experience that sport is really important. And you know, people don't like hearing that, that there's not like a silver bullet that you can just give somebody, but it's, it's true that there's not like any one thing that makes an individual great. It's, it's a lot of things. And we're talking about team ABC founded in Boulder, Colorado by Robin and and DDA Rabbitou. When you were working at team ABC, what was the biggest thing that you learned from Robin Herbisfield as a, as a boss, as a mentor. Robin has that intensity. That's for sure. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spent time with Robin, but she possesses that. And if there's anything that you can give kids as coaches, as parents, it's that intensity in the form that like, they know that you care so much about what they care about. So 
maybe that is the silver bullet. And that's something that I learned from Robin. And, and you see, like, if you went with Robin to a competition, you see it and you can feel it that she really cares about how those kids do uh, and what those kids want to do. And yeah, it just has so much like love for, for each and every one of them, especially your kids. And I think that's, that's why you see Sean and Brooke as successful as they are. Yeah, it's funny. You you say Robin's intensity and, and her devotion to the people she coaches. And then we've been talking about Colin Duffy. The first th- memory for me that comes to mind was being at the Pan Ams a f- few years ago when I was there when Colin qualified for the Olympics. And mm-hmm. I remember standing on the mezzanine next to Robin, being able to experience this this fandom that she was like radiating for Colin as she was coaching him, cheering him on. It was just, it's one of my favorite memories because it's almost hard to describe this synergy between coach and, and competitor. It was, it was very evident. It was like this electricity between, between the two of them. It it was, it was really awesome. Really awesome. No. and, And it's very apparent. Right. And like you said, you can kind of feel that energy and, and the athletes feel that too related to Colin. Let's just, let's just keep going here. We'll <laughs> keep talking about it. Olympian Colin Duffy, Tokyo Olympics. Uh, let's talk about your Olympic memories. You correct me if I'm wrong. You had kind of a unique entry into the whole Olympic world because you got the call to be a route setter uh, because somebody who was originally scheduled to be a route setter, Katja Vidmar uh, was pregnant and, could not go to to set at the Olympics. So you got the how did that work? Did the IOC or the IFSC just call you up and say, hey, uh, so Katja had a complication. Are you free uh, August of 2020? Yeah, more or less. That's how it worked. Uh, you know, it was it was actually right at the sort of height of COVID. It was what would have been December 2019, I think, right before the new year, maybe. And I remember the nominations were expected to come out, but obviously the whole season was in question because nobody knew what was going to be happening with COVID. And um, this was my second or third year officially as an IFSC root setter. And so I kind of expected the call to come back as like, "Eh, sorry, you're low man on the totem pole. You know, there's not much we can offer you this year. And instead it was like, Hey, uh, Katja is pregnant. Well, actually, she he didn't even say that Katja was pregnant at the time. It was Katja had a, she's just unable to set. And my first thought was, oh my God, is she okay? And then it was like, oh yeah, yeah, she's okay. Still didn't quite mention what it was, but yeah, she's okay. But, you know, we need somebody to set for Tokyo. She can't do it anymore. And um, you've done all these other events and the crew thinks that you're the best fit. And so are you available? And it was like, Oh, let me check my schedule. Uh, Yeah, of course. Uh, Definitely available. And yeah, it was, it felt sort of like everything that I had been working to those past 20 something years, or I guess at that point, almost 20 years. Yeah. It was really special to be able to do that at a time when it was, climbing's first foray into the Olympics. Two of the kids that I used to coach previously, Brooke and Colin, had qualified as two of the four uh, U.S. representatives, which was incredibly special. And then, yeah, to be able to see that in person and witness it, uh, it just felt sort of like a full circle moment. I I don't know if people realize just how incredible it was to have three people so closely tied to team ABC, uh, meaning Brooke, Colin, and yourself, uh, just so like a part of the Olympics to say nothing of Robin Herbisfield, who is as Colin's longtime coach there as it, it just speaks really volumes for team ABC and, and the, the system that they've put in place and not only for the competitors, but then for people, you know, you, you as a, as a setter, who, who was trained there, worked there. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like Team ABC should have a, a like a plaque or something inside their gym. <laughs> Maybe they do. I don't. I have not been there, but uh, they they should for being such a, a, a 
large fraction of the American Tokyo Olympics uh, kind of portion. Yeah, you know, it's um, I think in a lot of ways, I, I think that people underestimate how much these individual clubs give to USA climbing in general. You look at the competitors that have risen through the ranks. Natalia started off at zero gravity in San Francisco. She moved to Boulder and I'm, I'm forgetting the exact date. I want to say it was 2013, maybe 2014, but you know, zero gravity stone summit team, Texas vertical world. These are teams that, you know, have brought to competition climbing the likes of Drew Ruana, Zach Gala, Xander Waller, Bob Dylan, Dylan Countryman. Um, you know, there's Quinn Mason. The list goes on and on and on and on. There are, you know, I think coaches and all of those programs, people in all of those programs that care so much about what those kids and what those people want to accomplish, uh, that it really, I think what we're seeing and sort of like where USA climbing's team, where the U S team has gone these past several years now, we're, we're really seeing the effects of that. And yeah, at ABC in particular, we were really fortunate. I'm really grateful to have been a part of it, to have had the opportunity to work with all those individuals, parents, the coaches, the other root setters, the kids, because yeah, it's, it was a really special place. And like I said, you don't often have all those things come together at the same time. Yeah. I I'm hoping climbing will continue to be in many, many Olympics and it will be interesting to see whether there is one, which, which gym or which club holds the, the record for sending the most, <laughs> the most <laughs> Olympians over the years. That It's going to be a fun statistic. Yeah, you. This is pertaining related to USA Climbing and IFSC and and the clubs. Everything we just talked about. You said in an interview that in setting at the Olympics, you were trying to. And this is kind of a, a sort of a quote here. Package the sport for a new audience and a new era. That's a, a little bit paraphrased, but that resonated with me. Package the sport for a new audience and a new era. So when we are looking to Olympics in the future, 2024 in Paris being the most obvious one. How would you like to see the packaging of climbing and the packaging of route setting continue to evolve? Where do I begin? So in Tokyo, at the Olympics, you have such a bigger audience that would maybe never see the sport otherwise. And so the goal is to try to like you know, showcase what it is that we do as a sport, our athletes, uh, what our, our root setters are capable of. And, and really the focus is more about what the athletes do, but, you know, um, the whole goal is to make it like easily consumable for individuals. And so going into it, it was like, you know, we're not trying to set the most subtle movement that, you know, you have to be able to appreciate by kind of like, only seeing the angle of the wall or knowing how bad that foothold was, but we wanted to showcase for individuals, um, make it very clear where people were going. You know, there were monocolored routes so that it was very obvious where people had to get to on the wall. And to the point about those tension moves, like, yeah, tension move is very, very cool, but it's also can be hard to understand. And so what's very easy for people to understand is if they're dangling from one finger, okay, that's very easy to understand. If they're dangling from one hand, that's very easy to understand. And so trying to like balance those two things between pushing what are, what climbers were capable of uh, and challenging them with new movement and things that they hadn't seen before. And then at the same time, trying to balance that with, okay, let's, what's sort of like give the greatest hits to climbers or to people that have never seen climbing before. Let's close with in that same vein, kind of looking at the future because you've been a part of so many you setting teams, you've led setting teams. So I'm wondering if you were, if you had to hire a, let's just call it like a dream team of setters in the year 2023 and, and you're going to 
set for a gym going forward with this crew. What are you looking for in those candidates? Oh God, I'm so glad you didn't ask me to pick. Um, yeah, the <laughs> that's always the hardest part about you know being a chief or helping to organize the event is trying to pick who you want to be on the team. And sorry to go back to your other question too. I forgot that you had asked like where do you want it to go? So like the the goal was to package it as like this thing where you know, people could understand it better. And I think that's one of the areas that we can really lean into in the future. Our scoring system can still be a little bit complicated to understand. Uh, It can still be hard to identify, you know, who's in the lead and what they need to do to win. And so being able to, to share that with people and to tell the narrative of what's going on and what's at stake for individuals, I think is one of the areas that we can really grow as a sport. And that's, I think done through format. It's done through what's, what's broadcast. It's done through a lot of different ways, but that's one of the areas that I'm, I'm most excited about where we can potentially go. Cause I, I think already for a lot of individuals that it's exciting to just watch people climb. And if we can just, elaborate on that a little bit and make it so that, you know, it it is more of a competition. It is very clear what Sean needs to do to win. Then I think we can really captivate a bigger audience and, and help elevate athletes and and what they can win and do in the sport can really elevate what, what root setters can achieve in the, in the sport. So I think the more we can get people into it and bought into what it is that we do here and to understand that story, the better it's going to be for everyone. So in terms of picking a root setting team, there's a a couple of things that you look for as sort of a chief root setter. Um, One is going to be creativity. Um, Obviously, you know, their ability to sort of think outside the box and and see what's what else is possible, Um, their attention to detail, being able to know the rules, to know what's uh, what's possible, what's not possible in terms of the competition format itself, their empathy to like really understand what athletes go through a lot of setters. And this is also something that's changed over time to the point. Uh, earlier of like, you know, what has changed? It used to be that you just went in and set for yourself and put up what you like to climb on. And now it's much more about what do others want to climb on? And for competitions, it's much more about, well, what's going to challenge them? Not necessarily what's challenging me, but, you know, how well can this individual, how well can this root setter empathize with uh, what these individuals, these competitors are going through? Because if they can't understand uh, or even have a semblance of an understanding of like what it means to be in isolation, what it means to feel those nerves, then it, it makes it harder to do that job. And then lastly, I think there's sort of like an element of people that are fun to be around. It It's that's a hard one to quantify, obviously, because different teams are different. And so when you're like making your selections, you're kind of thinking of, oh, well, how will this individual work with this individual and how will that person do with so-and-so? But that dynamic can really make or break the week of the competition. Uh, if the individuals aren't gelling with one another, then it makes it harder to do the job. And so you want people that are going to motivate each other. You want people that are going to inspire each other uh, and cheer each other on and, and make the week easier. I think what might be really encouraging to people is in those qualifications you just listed, nowhere was there a mention of tenure, of long-term experience saying, I want somebody who has been at this for 10 years or or 50, whatever. And you also didn't mention certifications. And that is certainly not to devalue those qualifications. Obviously, those are wonderful if they can complement a candidate's other skills. But that might be nice to hear for people that are new to setting and they maybe don't have a, a lot of experience or they don't have a lot of certifications. Sounds like in the case of what you just said, you, like they can still be a valuable, a viable candidate for, for being on a setting team. Yeah. That's, you know, I think an important thing that gets lost often and, and obviously like certification, like, Sure, when you're selecting for, say, a nationals crew, there's you're limited in the pool of candidates you can select because of 
the, the requirements of the competition. You, you know, when you're selecting for an international competition, you're limited to the pool of individuals that you have, but more broadly, what you're looking for are those things that I, I was talking about. Um, and, and I think another important mention is like, you don't have to be the strongest climber. You have to have some, some level to be able to appreciate the moves and particularly be able to gauge outside of your understanding of the moves. That's what's really hard. And that's what I was talking about. Sort of that empathy. I'm not particularly good at getting my hips up. So I have to really be able to understand, okay, well, you know, it's hard for me, but it's probably not going to be that hard for them or it might not be that hard for them. So you don't necessarily have to do every single move in order to be a contributor to the team is I guess what I'm getting at. And I think that gets, that gets people down a lot is, Oh, I didn't do this move. And they feel as though they have to perform when they show up. And it's, it's not about that. It's, there's a lot of other things that you do to contribute to the team um, in any, any given week. So. Yeah, this is great stuff. And uh, I feel like every time you and I chat, I feel like we could chat for longer. I hope we can talk again. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to plug or maybe for people that are listening is there any way they could follow you to stay updated on, on what you're doing and, and where you're going? The, the one thing that I'd, I'd plug for people is like one of the, the quotes I, I like to live by is whether you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right. And for me, that that's a lot of what drove my ambitions to like, to root setting is like, I was just going to, manifest this and obviously i was fortunate and i i had elements of privilege and and all sorts of coincidence that happened but like i wanted to make that the thing i i just loved doing that thing and so um if you really love it i I think you can you can try to find a way and it's not always going to be easy that's by no means to say that like it's it's just going to be roses and easy path but you know believe in yourself Thanks for listening to today's episode. Thanks to Garrett for coming on the show and helping us launch this thing. If you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate your help in spreading the word. So tell a coworker about the CBJ podcast, tell a friend, tell that person that's sitting next to you there on the bouldering mats right now. That person right there, go tell them. There's a lot of other CBJ content out there too. There's an insider newsletter for the latest info about all the business of indoor climbing. And there's also a job board. So if you're moving and searching for a job at a climbing gym, check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram, which is at Climbing Journal. Or you can just click around on the main website. That's ClimbingBusinessJournal.com. We'll see you again soon for another episode.